It is December 2014, and resident historian Doug Kank Crispin has been reading. This is some kick-ass Oregon history. Welcome to another installment of Kick-Ass Oregon History, a survey created by the geeked-out history folks at ORHistory.com. I'm your host, Andy Lindbergh, and under the guidance of resident historian Doug Kank Crispin, we profile only the most badass, captivating Oregon stories. It's all Oregon sex, drugs, rock and roll, and earth-shattering, devastating destruction. Basically, the good stuff. Kick-Ass Oregon History is a presentation of ORHistory.com and is supported by listeners like you. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit ORHistory.com and click Donate. This is resident historian Doug Kent Crispin, and this is another episode of the Kick-Ass Book Club. And it's my favorite book club that I've ever been in because I get to choose all the books we read. No more selections about some 40-something divorcee wandering the world to find their happy place. It's just solid books about Oregon history. We interview the authors who wrote these books and present them with probing questions about why their book should be in the Oregon Library. And we'd like to encourage you to ask them questions, too. Just go to our Facebook, our Twitter, or email us your questions for your favorite authors, and we might just ask yours. This week, Heather Arndt Anderson, author of Portland, A Food Biography, sits down and discusses some delicious Oregon history with the resident historian over oysters and a few Manhattans. Historian Doug Kane Crispin and I'm at the Dan Louis Oyster Bar and chatting with Heather Arndt Anderson about her new book, Portland Food Biography. And Heather, I think they were just making our drinks in the background. They, I sure as hell hope so. Thank you for joining me for lunch today, Heather. Thanks for having me. I'll do anything for a free lunch. Okay, um, some ground rules. Um, a challenge right off the bat. Okay. Can we not talk about Erickson's in this interview? Yeah. I think we've done like four podcasts on that saloon of yours, and I think Andy would throw a shit fit if we did another. So do you think we can actually have an appropriate food conversation without discussing, without uttering that word Erickson's? Yes. Yes, we can. Okay. I'd, I'd make it a drinking game, like each time we said it, we have yeah. to do shots. But knowing both of us, we'd like try to say Erickson's. <laughs> just to do that yeah. so um, well the elevator speech uh, let's get right down to it let's say I didn't quite understand it from the title but what is Portland a food biography about Portland a food biography chronicles the Rose City's rise from a Wild West outpost or a little um, out, uh, extension of San Francisco to the critical darling of the national food scene over the past 150 years 
All right, so let's start here, actually. Uh, we're eating and drinking in a very historic Portland restaurant. I used to come to Dan Louie uh, in the 80s with my mom. She loved fried oysters. And I love coming here, too, because with all the portholes and so on, it's actually like you're inside of a ship, albeit a ship with lots of breakable plates hanging <laughs> on the walls. Um, nonetheless, it hasn't changed in, thir in 30 years, and I'm willing to wager it's been even longer than that. So tell us about Dan and Louie Oyster Bar. Well, um, Dan and Louie Oyster Bar was started by uh, the son of German immigrants, uh, Louis Walksmith, in a, about 1908. He partnered with uh, this guy, um, Roland Mills, and it was Mills, I couldn't remember the first name. And uh, they started the um, Portland Oyster Company. And uh, so they were working for a while, and then uh, Mills wanted to go off and do some other stuff. And so uh, Locksmith took over Oregon and changed the name to Oregon Oyster Company and ran it as a seafood company for a while. And he started serving oyster stew and oyster cocktails in little glasses, and uh, they were wildly successful. The stew really gained a name for him. And so he uh, put in a couple of tables in, in the storefront and pretty soon there was always a line, so they, they moved over to this spot over here. And it's been little portholes and breakable plates on the walls That's ever right. since. You wrote extensively about the original native Oregonians, and you're really well versed in the subject, and you gave it a treatment unlike uh, many others that I've read out there. It's really, really well done. And there's so much to talk about. That could be a whole episode in itself, of course, but why don't you tell us about Camus and Death Camus? Camus is a Camassia Quamash. It's a native member of the lily family and uh, grows extensively throughout the Pacific Northwest, um, very much in the uh, Willamette Valley. And it was a major food, it was a staple food of Pacific Northwest people. Its bulb, which grows underground like an onion, is a very uh, good source of carbohydrates. The bulbs can be roasted and mashed into a cake. Um, and another interesting thing about the, uh, the starches in camas is that it's high in an oligosaccharide that actually prevents diabetes and uh, prevents heart disease. And so the diet that was very heavy in uh, starch and fish fats um, was really ideal for the people here because they were eating everything that helps them process it. Um, death camas is a different genus, very similar looking plant, Zygodinus venenosus, and it uh, looks very much like camas, but that it has a white flower, slightly different. And so one trick, since the, the bulb is harvested in the fall after the flowers are all gone, the Native American women, who were the only ones allowed to collect camas because men would basically lose their masculinity if they touched any camas processing equipment other than carving the stick used for digging the camas. The women would bend the stems on the camas in the spring so that in the fall they would be able to just go pick the, the bulbs out of the, the plants that had the, the bent stems and avoid the death camas. Let's start at the very beginning, well at least the pink people beginning because we talked a little bit about the beginning before that. Fresh milk hung on the side of the prairie schooner, churning into butter by the end of the day. You wrote about that. I thought that that was just some bullshit that you see at the Oregon City, Oregon Trail Museum, but this is actually true, huh? So here's the thing. Lanford Hastings, who wrote The Emigrant's Guide to Oregon and California, he, he included a list of supplies um, and, and equipment that one should bring on the trail to Oregon. And he very strongly 
advised using oxen only. Uh, horses were too uh, too much of a liability that gets stolen. Um, Thank you very cows, much. Cows, he said that, yeah, some people uh, want to have cows, but they're, you know, kind of more trouble than they're worth. Um, I actually don't know why no one thought to just use oxen milk. That seems like it would have been a good... But nonetheless, uh, there there is uh, evidence that people did bring milk cows and that they would just scoop the cream off in the morning and put it in the churn, just hang the churn on the tailgate. And uh, yeah, and then they would cool it. There were stories from pioneer women um, who wrote about their account or in their journals of having kept their butter in the streams to keep it cold. So there is actually evidence that butter was being churned on the Oregon Trail. And they recommended 10 pounds of coffee. That seems like a horrifically low amount so of too. coffee. Yeah, and Hastings also didn't recommend bringing beans. It was not in his list of uh, supplies or groceries or provisions, but um, almost everyone ate beans as a staple. So now, I think, yeah, sorry. Danford Balch makes a brief appearance in your book. Um, what do you picture old man Balch eating while he's on the lamb, hiding and dripping the forest park? Well, he probably was no friend of the Indians, so he, he, I don't think that he learned any, you know, ethnobotany <laughs> to draw from and keeping his ass alive out there. I think he probably just uh, trapped little squirrels or he found some berries. When was he on the lamb? It was like, was it spring or winter? I believe it was winter. Yeah, he'd have been up Shit Creek. Yeah, he'd have yeah. been up Balch Creek without a paddle. Yeah. <laughs> Synonymous with Shit Creek. Andy and I, uh, we went up to Alaska in 91. It's kind of a hellish story in itself, but we ate a lot of squirrels, um, you know, and you mentioned about the squirrels there. Nobody's done a squirrel food cart. Before. I know, and you know, it's a, They're just it's a fucking damn shame. They are, and you know what? I, um, I've always thought that squirrel would taste like a nuttier rabbit, you know. I equated it more to like a rat, especially when you're eating it kind of grilled on a spit over the fire as yeah, we did. It was kind of like passing true. a rat on a stick around to these four hungry gentlemen to take a bite off of. Rats and, and squirrels are more closely related than squirrels are to rabbits. Next culinary You talked about uh, establishing Portland as the cracker capital of the West, which I think is so appropriate on so many levels. But let's, let's talk about little, little tasty crackers. Yeah, um, Portland really made a name for itself. Portland made a name for itself doing a lot of things. But one of those things, uh, the, some of the earliest really crazy wealth that came to Portland was um, through wheat exports to China. Um, because, you know, the Chinese love noodles. And so we were growing a lot of wheat in Tualatin Valley and the Willamette Valley. And so all these wheat exports and flour exports were really sort of putting us on the map as being a place where um, bakeries could start happening uh, set up in the, in the city. The 1880s, the cracker companies, they were hiring all these Volga German boys to come work in the factory. And uh, you go upstairs and get your little two bits of broken cookies. And um, 
So then there was, uh, when Liba and Wittenberg split, the other, the competitors tried to engage in this kind of price warfare, slashing prices uh, down to bedrock, but it ended up backfiring. Um, it had worked with a different guy in the wheat business, with Tom Wilcox, but it backfired this time, and Oregon Steam Baking Company got completely absorbed by Wittenberg's Portland Cracker Company. Um, and then eventually, Wittenberg kind of retired early. He'd made millions, millions of dollars in only about a decade. So he sold out, retired, died a little bit later. And then the Swastika Biscuit Company was the one that, um, that ended up taking over the plant. Um, by the time Wittenberg died, uh, Portland Cracker Company, which, like I said, became uh, Swastika Biscuit Company, was the biggest cracker company in the entire West. It's crazy. And Kenton was beef town. Oh, yeah. We talked quite a bit about that as well. Yes, the Swift Meat Company came to the city of Kenton, which was not part of Portland in 1908, um, because they were, they were setting up outposts in the West because it was too costly to ship beef from Chicago by train. There was no refrigerated cars. They were actually having to ship live cattle and then slaughter them out here. Um, so that was too costly. They set up uh, the little town of Kenton. They bought 300 acres of land, which was just like dairy farms, basically. And they platted it, and they sold uh, little individual tax lots to their employees uh, who would build little kit bungalows. And if you go out to Kenton now or just look on Google or uh, Street View, you can see all the, the little bungalows look the same. Um, yeah, and then uh, in the 20s and 30s, uh, they were really just this very bustling city. Um, it became annexed into Portland about that time. There was uh, a lot of money in the town. It was, uh, there was its own bank. It had a beautiful hotel for all of the beef barons to come stay when they were visiting Kenton. Um, they had a theater that was supposedly rivaled um, only by the Egyptian in its beauty and grandeur. And then, uh, unfortunately, in the 1960s, the highway system really crushed it because uh, no businesses were, were building in the city center. They were building closer to the highway. And, you know, as it is with much of small-town America, um, the highway system really just kind of had devastating effects on the town. And then the slaughterhouse closed in 1966, and that was pretty much it. Ewing Young set up the first distillery in Oregon. Uh, but you also tell about some gnarly camas beer on the Clark and Lewis expedition. Can you share some of these kind of early imbibing tales? Yeah, Lewis and Clark, uh, by the time they got to Portland, they were so beat down and they just were so bitter. They're all like, you know, if you read their journal, it's a series of bitching and groaning arguments about like the geese are too loud, it's cold and rainy, there's too many fleas, they just would not shut the fuck up about it. But um, some of the camas cakes that they had traded with the Indians uh, started to go sour, <laughs> started to rot basically, and, and so uh, their hunter was able to turn them into beer, and they said it was very good, and you know, that, that was what they had. Ewing Young's distillery though, I love so much because he did it just to stick it to McLaughlin. Uh, Ewing Young had come up to try to be, um, get into the cattle trade, and McLaughlin shut him down because he was running the cattle game in town. Hey! 
After enjoying some bivalves, Heather Arndt Anderson continues chatting about why Ewing Young came to Oregon. This pamphlet, this come to Oregon pamphlet, that was based solely on the romanticism of the Lewis and Clark journals, and um, was like, let's take Oregon for America. And of course, McLaughlin was not having that because he's from England, and Oregon territory, you know, was his property as far as he was concerned. But uh, so Ewing Young was like, fuck it, I'll come out, you know, I'm gonna come see what I can get. And uh, he got shut the fuck down. So he's like, all right, you know, just to show you, Keith went, went over to Soviet Island and set up a still, and um, the was gonna trade liquor to the Indians, which was, that's, you know, where, you, where McLaughlin drew the line, so he's like, all right, all right. So he got his, like, general so-and-so from Washington, D.C. to come out and talk to Tensity Ewing Young. And uh, Young's like, okay, fine. And um, But the guy was like, I really like your, your gumption. And so what do you say we start this cattle company? And so, yeah, Ewing Young went down to California, which was um, then still part of Oregon. Um, it was Oregon was on the border of Mexico at the time. And got some guys and uh, wrestled up some of the big longhorn cattle and brought them up. And... Uh, and that was basically what ended the monopoly. I know that's not really about liquor, but I just, I love what Ewing Young did. And then by the time he died, he was so rich that the provisional government had to be created just to divide his estate. Because he had no heirs, correct? Right. But yeah, so there were little stills here and there. There was one in, uh, there were a few in Forest Park. Peace Hollow, thank you. That's great. Thank you. Yes. All right. Well, let's talk about crab louie. Crab louie is a dish possibly born in Portland, correct? There is a possibility. The It appears on menus in Portland and San Francisco at around the same time. The first time it appears in a cookbook is in San Francisco, but food trade um, culinary, you know, culture was traveling between San Francisco and Portland super frequently, and so some things that could have started in Portland may have been published in San Francisco earlier and vice versa. But um, yeah, just a couple years after the first time Crab Louie shows up in San Francisco, it's already showing up in like Housewives cookbooks in Portland, the neighborhood cookbook from South Portland. Tell us about the oyster saloons of Portland. Oysters were huge. May I have another thing? Of course. Which? I'm not going <laughs> to hog them all. <laughs> Oysters were a really big deal in uh, the 1880s, especially. There was an oyster craze happening in the country. And uh, Portland luckily had Japanese immigrants to bring. Um, oyster farming technology straight to the west coast so we didn't have to ship them from back east and that is what we did we, we started using these uh, Japanese oysters and um, see most of like the finer restaurants had at least a, an oyster saloon aspect they all sold ice cream and oysters and then um, a little bit later in the 19th century uh, tamales and so there was this just burgeoning industry of tamales, not even Mexican tamales, but San Francisco-style tamales. Um, yeah, and oysters, and they, were, they catered mostly to women. 
There's blankets. We can take Be careful because it's really excellent. Thank you so much. Look at this feast. Perfect. Yeah, not yet. Pigs. Three million oyster crackers, I think I read in your book, right? Right. You can see a few packets of them right here. Yeah, I don't know why they didn't just get the cracker business. I don't think these are New England. They should use an Oregon cracker. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. Ladybugs came to the ladybugs picnic. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. And they all played games at the ladybugs picnic. They had twelve sacks with the ransack races. They fell on the backs and they fell on the faces. The ladybugs twelve had the ladybugs picnic. They played jump rope, but the rope be broke. So they just sat around till a knock knock dose. The ladybugs twelve had the ladybugs picnic. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. And they chatted away at the ladybugs picnic. They talked about the high price of furniture and rugs, fire insurance for the ladybugs. The ladybugs twelve. At the ladybugs picnic Twelve Yeah, that's my favorite part of reading about Portland history is getting the just these images it, they're, they're so fleeting, you know, you get them from just advertisements in the Oregonian or um, articles in magazines you just get this idea that Portland was a really kind of bustling little cosmopolitan town. It was just so full of hope and new money. Some of the money was, you know, from people who had grown up with money on the East Coast, but um, it just was this wonderful little town where uh, young dudes in their 20s could just come out here and make a name for themselves and blow the fuck up. I mean, like, they were making so much money. And again, I mean, you talk about that cosmopolitan aspect, and, you know, it's absolutely something that we found in researching our um, you know, bars of which I've gotten fucked up at, yeah. podcast or whatever it's called. But uh, this was absolutely an international community. I mean, people are coming from other parts of the world into Portland, and if they're not from other parts of the world, they've been to other parts of the world. Yeah. I mean, just the nature of the ships coming in and, you know, the crews being tired of it or what have you, and being able to make a name for themselves here in this town. It was indeed, it was a little stumpy burg, mm -hmm. but it was indeed a cosmopolitan place. Yeah, I like thinking about the time when there was just around the corner from here, basically like three blocks away, there was a, a thriving community of Japanese immigrants and uh, right next to Chinatown. And very close to a saloon that we will not mention. Right, right. But there was, you know, like a tofu factory three blocks away from here. Ota Tofu Company uh, started here over 100 years ago, and uh, it's the oldest tofu company in America. Portland has a lot of the, you know, quote-unquote oldest X in America with regard to food and so fuck you Boston yeah well fu yeah fuck you Brooklyn too you know 
I think a lot of people kind of roll their eyes or are over Portland Fever, but fuck the haters. We earned it. You know, we've been doing this for a really long time. It's just that now we're not in San Francisco's shadow or Seattle's shadow. And that's kind of a good segue. It was a question later that I have for you, but is your book too Portland? I mean, your last book on Breakfast, of course, was Mm -hmm. a national book. Uh, You know, Portland gets a lot of play in the New York Times. We get a groovy little mention weekly about our food Mm -hmm. scene, obviously. But is your book uh, kind of a niche book for the Portland area? Yeah, only because it's culinary history, and culinary history is already, you know, it's very niche within the broader context of books about history, um, nonfiction books, books about food. It's uh, the fact that it's a nonfiction cultural history of one very kind of small city does make it niche, but who cares? You know, it's people who are students of culinary history and uh, want to know the story of how the Pacific Northwest developed. I think that culinary history can't be overlooked as an important aspect of social history. Um, I think that a lot of times it gets ignored because women are the ones who cook and who gather food. And uh, I think that culinary history is a really important aspect of women's history. So um, yeah, I I don't think that, I I think that yes, it is a a niche subject, but um, who cares? But the more details, the better. Let's go back. Um, I loved your descriptions of the Louvre and the Hofbrau. Tell us about those establishments. So the Hofbrau, which ended up becoming the Hofbrau Quell. Um, Not to be confused with Sam's Hofbrau, as some no, of our Hofbrau older residents Quell, may re- recall. Right, um, which became Jake's eventually. The Hofbrau was one of just many uh, really illustrious German-owned restaurants in Portland that was uh, owned by a gay dude. <laughs> And the Louvre uh, was a little bit more famous. So um, Theo Cruz was a hotelier and uh, caterer. He was a German immigrant. And he, um, he, oh, he bought the Louvre and uh, turned it into this wildly popular, I mean, it was like one of Portland's most fabulous, just like glamorous restaurants. They had a separate men's area, which is not uncommon. Um, a lot of times they had a separate section for women and families to dine um, so that, you know, they could be protected from the coarseness of men, not because men needed their space. But uh, in what was it, 1913, it got involved in um, this uh, scandal. They had, it, what ended up happening was that it was exposed that the, the Louvre was a really good gay cruising spot because they had a men's only room. And it was already so beautiful. It was like, you know, white tablecloths and big potted palms and, you know, burnished wood wainscoting. I mean, it was fabulous. So, yeah, um, the, one of the first arrests was their violinist, Gypsy Rigo. <laughs> he got arrested. And then, mm-hmm, and then this, and this big blow up, the Vice click scandal happened. So Louvre um, owner, Theo Cruz, takes off for a while. He's trying to like kind of go under the radar. And then he opens his place. But wait, I, I love oh, this. He, yeah. he opens a place. He's trying to be low profile. <laughs> so he opens a place called the Rainbow Grill. Because that's is, not gay. This is my, <laughs> I'm glad that you caught my humor there because 
It wasn't that you know rainbows were gay back then, but they. It's really funny because if you read the articles now that are telling the story about the Rainbow Grill, like the gay refectory where the gay laugh can be heard, and and I'm just over here like my 12-year-old boy self snickering like hee hee hee, he said gay, it's the Rainbow Grill. But yeah, the Rainbow Grill was equally fabulous. They had uh, these like chandeliers that had uh, quartz crystals, so the light would reflect and cast rainbows all over the walls. Yeah, it was just, uh, yeah, the Oregonian could not stop talking about how fabulous it was. Um, yeah, Theo Cruz was just an interesting character. Uh, he ended up getting divorced because he took off for a few months. He, like, left town with his boyfriends, and uh, his wife didn't know where the fuck he was. He was gone for, like, weeks before she finally put an ad in the paper saying, hey, if you see my husband, let me know, because... <laughs> He and he had been in all dreaded places, Seattle. Yeah, with, with a couple of dudes. And oddly, it. his wife wasn't having that. No. So, Heather, you talk about B-Sauce, Jake's. Hubers, uh, Hot Cake House, and of course, Dan and Louie. Mm -hmm. So let's say I wanted to dine or drink at a Trey Historic Restaurant, as I often do. What would you recommend as kind of, you know, something that really hasn't changed in decades in Portland? And let's get real, how's good food? I think that uh, this place here, Dan and Louie and Hubers, are equally adept at maintaining uh, a, just this crystal clear snapshot of what it was like here 100 years ago. Um, Huber's, of course, is just, you can't compare apples to oranges. I mean, turkey dinners, coleslaw, like they're still doing it exactly the way that Jim Louie did it in the 1870s, 1880s. And, uh, you know, it's really the only place in town that you can go get Thanksgiving all year round. Their Spanish coffee's not historic, and that's just from the 1970s. Um, so don't let that fool you. But this place really is still serving the exact same items. But there's also places that are not really restaurants that don't get a lot of attention, like the bakery Alessio's, where Dan and Louie gets their bread, this bread right here that we're eating. And uh, Nick's Coney Island gets their buns from Alessio. And that place has been around since 1915, just sort of quietly running their bakery over on Hawthorne. You can go in, buy bread, buy cookies. You know, people just don't know about it. They're still using a recipe that they've been baking their family recipe from the 17th century. I mean, it's some legit um, stuff. I think that those kinds of places that are just in your neighborhood under the radar are the ones we really need to pay attention to because those are not on the tourist radar. They're not getting written up in Palma every month. And um, they're a little out of the way places like, you know, Lou's Drive-In or Rokes, you Skyline, know. talk Skyline, about Skyline. Yeah, places that are just sort of neighborhood joints that are not part of the central touristy part of downtown. I think that those are the places to really, those are the places that people are truly heartbroken when they close, yet they can't say that they've been there in 20 years. So. Now, of course, I think you would put uh, Jake's up there. Jake's, yeah, but they're owned by McCormick and Schmick now. Um, so it's kind of, I don't know had family and worked for McCormick and Schmick. Jake's is uh, still legit though. I mean, I think the bar is where it's at. Lovely Manhattan there. They're crawfish. 
Tell us about the painting at Jake's. Yeah, it's okay. So the, the painting infidelity is painting. Yeah, uh, Jake Fryman had something of a reputation for uh, being a hot-tempered dude. And supposedly, just to get the goat of the, one of his regular customers, just want to piss this guy <laughs> That's off. That's always good for business, right? Yeah, you're like, fuck that guy. I'm going like, to, and I'm banging his wife because fuck that guy. Because um, like once so we commissioned a nude portrait of the guy's wife. wife, just to be like, whoops, I'm banging your wife. And uh, the guy gets so pissed off that a fight breaks out, shoots the painting. But unfortunately, it's all bullshit. Uh, it's actually, it was a painting that was originally Venus the Bath that had hung in the Louvre restaurant, which we mentioned. And uh, yeah, Walter Holman, who was a later Jake's owner in the 50s, tracked it down and bought it for the, the restaurant. It's all it's bullshit. all bullshit. All the best stories in Portland are yeah. bullshit. And then, they, and then they took his wife and they shanghaied her in Right, tunnels. in the tunnel that's yeah. seen in Dan right. and Louie, right in the park. Right there. evolution of Mexican food in Portland uh, particularly interesting in your book. Of course, I'm a big fan of tacos and uh, the lovely little taquerias that we have almost everywhere in this town, but Mexican food has a pretty brief heritage in Portland. Can you talk about that? Yeah, you know, even though Oregon was technically on the Mexican border for, you know, until California became a state, um, we didn't have a really large Hispanic population in Portland until World War II when all the Japanese Americans got interned out to uh, well, Idaho, the ones in Oregon. So all of a sudden we found ourselves without a large farming population and so um, the Bracero program was instituted as this way of sort of importing temp labor from Mexico to do the farm work. And uh, they didn't bring a bunch of restaurants and tamale parlors with them. I mean, it wasn't like California where there was always this very like vibrant population of people living alongside white folks and doing their own thing and having restaurants. It was more like a trickle and there were a couple of restaurants here and there but they were still mostly owned by white people. Like the um, Dots Cafe used to be Estrellita which was a little Mexican restaurant and the guy who owned it, who I think he was biracial, he may have had a, a Latina mother. He still was half German and just wanted to do things the quote unquote authentic way and so he made things a little bit spicier. But um, yeah, it wasn't until um, the mid-century when we even started seeing tortillas in stores. So like 1950s. So yeah, it was post-war for sure. And um, yeah, I don't know that the taco truck thing has always sort of been kind of under the radar. It just wasn't a big craze that, that people, people made tacos at home rather than go to a Mexican restaurant. How have Portlanders' palates changed over the decades? And I mean, to be fair, reading your book, I think one could make an argument that they haven't really changed either. But let's talk about that. Portlanders' palates today, and then looking back into our heritage, what can we see? Well, it's an interesting question because in trying to find, to identify and define what Portland's signature dish is, was kind of an impossible task. And I, I think he sidestepped that. No, I'm getting there. Okay, I'm getting All there. Right. I tried crowdsourcing it, and I tried um, solving the problem myself, but what I found was that a lot of the, the, the things that 
sort of define Portland culinary culture today are things that haven't changed. So the, the love of beer, the love of lager, cuisine, biscuits and gravy, chicken fried steaks. Name a breakfast joint in town where you can't get biscuits and gravy. Even vegan, gluten-free biscuits and gravy. I mean, it's just, Fuck me, man. I know. Fuck that. <laughs> <laughs> Pork or GTFO. But the fact that there's still, you know, this, and pie, there's pie everywhere. This the kind of food that um, salmon, um, and then Thai ethnic food, the kinds of foods that people think of Portland as really excelling at are foods that we've just been doing for 150 years. And 150 years ago, the, the food that Portlanders wanted to eat was uh, defined by the person they were. If they were a higher society person, they might want to have oysters or a delicately roasted chicken or some like New England recipe because that's likely where their family came from if they were white. American, um, but then there was also Chinese food was super popular because it was quote unquote exotic and Orientalism was really sweeping the Northwest and we still are really known for having uh, a lot of really good Asian food here, not necessarily Chinese in Portland anymore, but Southeast Asian for sure. Lager cuisine is still done perfectly well here. Um, it's not that you can't get good biscuits and gravy or pie in the South, but I think that People really still identify Portlanders with beards and flannel and twisty mustaches. <laughs> and I think that that's for a reason. What was left out of the book? What didn't make it to the book? Give us a tidbit. Give us a little gem here that's not in the book for just the listeners of Kick-Ass Oregon History. There was, as you know, I'm very detail-oriented, and I managed to cram a shitload of information into those only 80,000 words. But I want to um, issue an apology to the good folks at Sheridan's that I overlooked, including them in the history of um, supermarkets and groceries in Portland. And it wasn't a cutting room floor kind of thing. It was completely just an oversight. And it, it breaks my heart that I didn't realize my error until too late. But other than that, I you know I included almost everything. I even slipped a dick joke in there, which you noticed, I hope. I did. Yeah. And I, I was hoping quality pie would appear in there. Quality pie wasn't, it was just too brief. I know. I know, you know, God, I do. If I just, I could write a whole book just on Pacific Northwest um, lumberjack cuisine. And God, I would love to. My dad used to ride his bike over the St. John's Bridge to Quality Pie when he was a kid. Yeah, I uh, came down off of acid there a few times and it wasn't Great. ever pleasant. I came down off acid at the Hotcake House. <laughs> Vsauce was one of my yeah, come down yeah. spots too. Yeah, yeah. It's so great. Southeast kid, North Yeah, North yeah, North yeah. North North you know, it's like yeah, it was the nineties, right? Maybe the eighties. Well, thank you so much, Heather, for joining us today. I appreciate it. I'm glad we could uh, meet here in this uh, wonderful lunch spot with our Manhattans and chat. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thank you for listening, Ass Kickers, and be on the lookout for future podcasts from ORHistory.com. We hope that you agree that this episode featured some kick-ass Oregon history. 
Today's podcast was recorded, edited, and produced by Doug Tank Crispin and Andy Lindbergh. Citations are available on request. Kick-Ass Oregon History is on Twitter at Oregon underscore history. You can also find us on the Facebook. Our email address is OregonHistorian at gmail.com. Want more Kick-Ass Oregon History in your life? Become a podcast supporter. Learn more at orhistory.com. Just don't get too close to Mr. Kank Crispin, or he'll crack open your shells and devour you. You stay historic, Oregon, and kick ass.
orhistory.com.